Hey, Draven, welcome to the show. Great to have you here, man. And guys, it's great to be with you this evening in my time, but your morning time. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Thank you for giving up your evening. I want to dive into your journey, Draven. This is what the podcast is all about, just being unfiltered, being candid. So take us back to your early days, a story of 200 pounds and a bag full of clothes and a bus ticket. What did that mean? I've heard that story firsthand from you at a pub, but would love to hear it from you for the audience. I suppose I would take up the whole podcast then. And when I was 18, I became homeless. And I mean, property homeless, slept in the street for a few months and then hustled. So my journey has been a mixture of hustle, determination, resilience, and self-development and learning. And I think it all makes sure those things, but also not forgetting each part of my journey and having humility along the way has been really important. The 200 pounds and the bus ticket, the 200 pounds was the money that I'd saved up working in a bar in Southern Ireland. And then back then it was the pound before it became the euro. And just as I was about to convert my money into good British pounds, the euro came in, which completely devalued what I had. And then that I have really 200 pounds. It's a rough estimate of probably even less, but converted that, headed back to Northern Ireland. So to serve homeless for a while. And I started my journey in the bar industry recycling glass bottles and then moving into bars. But before I knew it, it's like anything I suppose I set my mind to, I want to try and do it to the best of my ability. And I went on to be a bartender, bar manager, and then running a nightclub at the age of 19. That turned over a quarter of a million pounds a week and I had 110 staff. And I can tell you I have this beard because I looked baby-faced then, but I still look baby-faced now. And trust me. <laughs> When you're 19 years of age and you've got big burly doormen standing at the front door and you're giving them orders of what to do, they don't respect the baby face kids. So you have to learn how to earn that respect. And I think what I learned then are the rules that I use today. Still, I don't really ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't be prepared to do. At the end of the night, I went and picked up the, the brush and swept the floor with the rest of the team in the bars and whatnot. My career started there and then I went into advertising agencies. And then as we all probably remember the advent of digital and web and proliferation of mobile applications and everything else. So I found my first digital agency with my business partners and I'm a business partner in Clipboard as well. So it got really early and that, that was the journey in a short nutshell, but lots of mad crazy things in along the way to, to get the night. And like Ricky, I guess I've been lucky enough to spend a fair bit of time with you over the last couple of years. So what sparked Clipboard? What was that moment we looked at went, hey, this is something I want to build? When I was running the software agency, so we started a company called Gravity, which was the advent of digital product agencies back in 2008, 2009 kind of phase. And I suppose it was when apps and business apps were coming about and people were still building bespoke software. Great business, great lifestyle business, etc. But hard to keep the wheels continuously turning because you're seeking constant new projects, new revenue. It's not a compounding recurring rent. So hard, but fun. But we d developed numerous projects in that business numerous different types of platforms and automotive industries and whatnot. So 
Clipboard came about really because we determined that building bespoke software in those projects, people wanting to buy bespoke software and spend that capital investment was declining. You had got cloud coming in and everything else. The early days of SaaS. And we thought, how do we take what we learned in mobile applications for business and scheduling and whatever else? And also, where was there a market gap? And field service represents, even today, a huge market gap and it's still a huge growing gap. It's very underserved, very legacy orientated. So we thought we can take a completely new mobile first spin to this. Yes, and that's why we got into clipboard really. Traven, you mentioned in your bar manager story about you wouldn't ask anybody to do what you're not prepared to do yourself. As yeah. you then come into the leadership position, obviously delegation plays such a major role in order for yeah. the company to be successful. So how do you find that balance? That was definitely a huge learning curve for me in my last business. And then even somewhat more of a learning curve in this business, but definitely in the first business, because I think when you run and start your own first company, there could be a tendency to lead towards nearly micromanaging, but you're not even really a micromanager. It's just because you want to control all entities of it, make sure it's safe. And therefore you're doing things that you shouldn't probably be doing. Uh, and there's better people at it. And that was one of the learning curves that I got was surrounding myself with people that were a lot smarter than me, probably a lot better looking than me as well, and get them to do the things that I wasn't so good at. And I know that's a played out term that's talked about all the time. But really stepping back and learning where your skills were and where you should be leading and the culture that you should be setting was definitely much more important that I realized later on in my business journey. Asking people to do things that I wouldn't do, I suppose, has changed somewhat in the sense that I should at least have a good high-level firm understanding of what they're doing, but I don't need to have the minutia of what they're doing mm -hmm. anymore. And therefore, I did do it if I put my mind to doing it, but at least I, I can challenge their thought processes or what they're presenting to me and therefore have a clearer, better picture in the business. So that's transformed a little bit on the journey of me actually doing the specifics. That's the shift from being like the founder who gets his hands dirty on every single thing and does everything to the CEO where you're leading people more so than doing every single function, right? And yeah. so you, you got to shift into a, a leadership role where you're inspiring and driving the, the, the group of people you employ. I think what you said there is really important, Sean, inspiring. And it's a little bit of storytelling, but not yeah. the bullshit storytelling. It's getting people to believe in your vision, especially when you're a young startup business because hiring really good talent is a challenge because it's like, why should we come to you versus going to a bigger organization or it's safer, I've got more resources and everything else. They have to nearly believe in you, not necessarily my company clipboard or the software or anything like that. They need to believe in you. They need to believe you're going to deliver. You're going to say is what you say you do. So that leadership has to play a huge core strength for, for sure. It's not easy. Definitely not. And knowing people and understanding their behaviors and learning all of those things. And I've one thing I would say that I definitely had to improve on and get better. And 
this is the thing. I think people don't like to admit their weaknesses, but I'm happy to admit it. I had to learn to become more empathetic and empathetic with my team and understanding their point of view and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve. Whereas before it was maybe my mission and where I'm going with that mission. That doesn't really lead or encourage or inspire people. So building empathy and building rapport is definitely an area that I've had to develop over the last number of years and work on. Mm. Never say to you that they don't have anything to learn anymore. They're like, no one is perfect in this game. And, and the journey changes and every step you take is going to have new challenges. It's easy to learn bits about everyone when you're 50 people. When you get to 400 people, you're not going to remember everything about everyone. And there's always room to learn. I know I've talked about it plenty of times on the podcast. I sucked it firing people. So I'd take a year before I'm like, no, actually this person isn't going to make it because I build a connection, go, we can get this person through it. We can guide them. We can grow them. We can get them there. Look, everyone has things. Like you said, the important part is if you can identify the things you need to work on, then you're going to improve because you understand it's a weakness and you'll put the time and effort into improving on that and hiring good people around you who who supplement that that weakness and so that's the, a challenge as you grow your team, right? Putting the right smart people around you who, who might have different skill sets to you and, and different areas that supplement the bits that you're not, not strong in. And that's, that's what I was always lucky enough to have. And also people that will challenge you because it's easy yeah. to be very dominating in this position because you're the founder, you're the CEO, you've created this, you know everything inside out. Sometimes people won't challenge your position on it, but in effect, I want them to challenge my position. I'll challenge my thought processes, my ideas and my approaches and whatever else. It's a self-development two-way as well and improves my my leadership uh, for sure. I don't think that's a good point to culture, right? Like how you build that culture of people, especially that in your executive team around you will dictate whether they are comfortable to challenge you or not. Have you empowered them to actually have conversations Mm -hmm. with you to, to be like, hey, I think that's a dumb idea. And it's always a balance, but that's something you've got to be able to build up to so people feel they have a relationship with you and and confidence enough that they can call you out if you make a mistake, because you're going to make mistakes. I think that's one area that I haven't struggled on to, not for people who like channels me and calling me out, but I think my personality and my character is very open. And I think people read that from me. They know that I shoot straight from the hip. Some people can't digest that very well, but then they know that's the culture that they're coming in from. I'm very open and saying, I don't care if you make a mistake. I care if you don't tell me about the mistake that you've made and what you've learned from it. Don't try to lie or back out from it because the fact is I've more made more mistakes than I even care to remember or, but the reality is those mistakes have driven me forward and developed me further. That's what I want from the team as well. So having a kind of open door policy or open form of communication, in my opinion, at a very early stage startup is totally critical simply because everybody has to be accountable. They have to be. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you get into larger stages, you always get the cliques forming and those kind of larger entities and those doors start to seep in and whatever else. And that's probably going to be a challenge in that later stage for us and understanding how to manage that. But at, at now, we have to run a very transparent, accountable kind of. Yeah. And you can keep transparency and accountability forever. You just got to put the time and effort into building it. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's true. But it's, again, it's down to the people that you have in your senior management around you. Do they have that? Yeah. Do they want to drive that culture forward with you? Because really, you can't sail the ship by yourself. You need everyone no. else sailing it with you in the same kind of that same mindset. And as soon as you've got that culture where there's not that and you've got all the people sailing the ship with you, but they're pushing back and making interest, very hard to drive change or do anything or move momentum. But that too can be a challenge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You touched on a few things there, Draven. Obviously, charisma, the quality of leadership and the person and the vision you have is more often than not enough to have a beer or a coffee with the potential leaders coming into the business. However, that's not enough to actually get them to sign up. You need capital. Securing (laughs) funding is an interesting topic for a lot of the early stage founders, people that we speak to mostly. What strategy did you find effective in order to get that capital or do the fundraising in order to attract the talent or the leadership team that you needed in order to get to the next phase? Funding's a challenge, as you guys know. Certainly don't think the climate's going to get any more easy in that respect. Doing another round at the moment and hope closing soon. The strategy for us at the time, when we started, the UK was a growing tech scene. We had what they called Silicon Roundabout. So the infrastructure of European investment and whatnot was still at its beginnings and, and growing. And then obviously that accelerated over the last number of years. And now we're in a little bit of a flat mode and everybody's paused. But for any early stage founder, in my opinion, when you're taking early stage capital, having the right angels that are investing or high net worth individuals are investing are really important because the money is not necessarily the most critical bit. It is critical. Don't get me wrong. But it's what else do they bring to the table? Do they bring doors that they can open for recruitment of talent and people that they may have worked with before, or people that will uh, recognize them as a wait and go when they're involved, then we might get involved and attract the right people. Can they open doors to generate revenues, businesses, and everything else that goes along with that? So money nearly becomes a secondary ask uh, and a second question you should be asking. Too many early stage founders I see here go, oh, I, here's a hundred thousand. And they'll go, yeah, let me take the hundred thousand because I'm so desperate to take that money that they'll actually forget to nearly qualify their own angel investor. And then you interview there the same way as you'd interview a, a team member. Yeah. That's the very early stages. Then when you're moving into your venture capital or your fun kind of money, that's even more important. And the credibility of those investors and what they have on their portfolio. And a lot of the times there's like questions that just key questions. I think that a lot of early stage founders forget to ask when they eventually reach a fund stage of funding. One would be what stage is that fund in at deploying their capital? Because what Early, if you're a first-time founder and you're going to raise capital, you've never been through this cycle before, you're not going to know that those funds have a mandate for seven or 10 years to return the capital to their investors. So they'll spend three to five years deploying and then the next five years thereafter taking it back in. So if you're coming to a, the end of their fund cycle, you're going to want to squeeze you to exit quicker or 
that may not be good for your strategy. So asking those questions are who's in their portfolio that could also cross-pollinate, give me support, et cetera, et cetera, and what other kind of services. Now, I've seen this recently. A lot of funds saying, yeah, we'll help you with the recruitment. We'll help you with the marketing, the add-on services. Take it with a pinch of salt, but go and speak to their other portfolio companies. And if an investor doesn't hook you up to talk to their other portfolio companies, then they're hiding something. Go talk to them, especially taking that first chunk of uh, capital from a fund. And then finally, and Matt, the other question I think you should always ask is, are you going to do follow-on capital? Have you reserved enough money to follow on into the next investment rounds with me? Because I've seen so many early stage startups get screwed in that sense because the investor doesn't do follow-on capital and then you go and try and raise from new investors and those new investors just say, well, why is your existing investor not following on? Just those simple questions to ask and not to be afraid to ask them because if they're a credible son, the credible investors, they should be answering those dead easy. Right, some good tips. I'll give you a tip of my own. Every venture capital firm will give you people to go speak to in portfolio. They, they, they pick people that they know are going to say what they need them to say. <laughs> I always went and figured out who most of their portfolio is and then I'd cold call people they haven't told me to speak to. I wouldn't even speak to the people they told me to speak to. I'd always go find the ones where that, that have had a rough trot, right? Someone that you could find in their portfolio group that hasn't gone well, and I'd talk to them. Do you want to know the truth about <laughs> how they're going to be? Go talk to the ones that aren't gone well. Yeah, I was supportive that they're going to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think about, look, you should get driven pretty hard if you're not doing well, but you want to know how they do that hard drive. How do they think about it? Because you don't expect them to be all sunshine and lollipops if things haven't no. gone well. You just want to know how their minds think about those decisions, those tricky things. That's what we used to do. Look for the black sheep in the portfolio and have a chat to those dudes. Back to reference. Yeah. We call those the nearly like the drawer of shame. They're dying. They're not on their front page of their website nearly, but you know that they're the best of it. Yeah. But you balance, you got to balance that out because those people are going to be sour and so they're going to give you more bad than good. So you, if you talk to the couple they give you, you talk to the couple you find and try to find one in the middle who's neither here nor there. And that'll give you a good picture of, how people operate in a crisis in good times when they're trying to sell you because that's what you're getting from the ones they give you in crisis, the ones that are bad, and then someone in the middle that randomly is just ticking along. You, you get a good snapshot. But I support what you're saying. Do your research. Like, big choice to take capital in. Take your time. Do you know how many early-stage, young-stage companies do not do their research? And oh. they're just enamored by the fact that someone has said, we're giving you a term sheet for X value and X amount of money. And then also a lot of them don't gear themselves up to understand the logistics of an investment and the metrics of the investment. So many of them, and especially in the market that we're going into now, because we're seeing the re-entry of ratchets being put into term sheets and liquidation clauses and everything else. And there's a lot of unfair terms for a founder that's going to put blood and sweat and tears in and maybe come to the very end and get nothing. And no founder's doing this for the salary. And let's be real. You're doing it for the end. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding liquidation preferences and understanding the terms that go in their preferences and preference shares is super important. And if you don't understand them, you need to before you sign the terms. Correct. Correct. And if we flip the script, Draven, as a founder or an early stage CEO, what is it that you need to know? What information do you need to be armed with when you shake hands with the investors? Because a lot of them, 
when you ask them, what are you going to do with the money? We're going to actually invest the money. Do you have a team? Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for next three years? What has your growth been like? For some of them, it's almost never really thought about this. So what is it that you did so well when you went to that stage? I think having a, a robust financial plan of how you're going to deploy the capital and where the capital is going to be used and what your expectation of returning that capital is going to be. Let's be real. There's a little bit of a finger in the air scenario in early stage investment and financial metrics for sure. But there's still good rules of thumb that could be followed. You know how much a software engineer costs you per year. You know what their output's going to be. You know how much a marketing person's costing you and what their output's going to be. Or if you're buying some basic Google pay-per-click adverts, you should know what your click charges are and how many that you generate in leads. And funneling that down into a real robust financial plan is key for any investor that's looking at it. But actually for you as a founder trying to develop your business and what direction you're going to go, it's there to guide you. Don't get me wrong. It can flex and it can shift and move and whatever else. Personally, I know that there is investors that go, oh, we want a five-year plan. Let's be real. You get to year two, those next three years after, will never look what you projected, really. But at least the first key 12 to 18 months of that financial plan should look really solid about where you're going to deploy it all and, and where you're going to get a return on that for, for them. And I think that's going to be even more important because the days of cheap capital is over. It, it's gone. Interest rates are through the roof and everything else. Lots of dry powder out there for investment, for sure. But the, the rules for getting that is going to be a lot tighter. And so they, they're going to want to know that. I always felt like if someone asked me for a five-year plan, I hadn't pitched the vision hard enough. They didn't understand my vision for where the business was going. Because the only reason to ask me for a five-year plan is you didn't buy into where this company is going. And yeah. now you want me to put it into like financial mechanical terms. And I'm like, I can't, it's five years away. It's impossible. Yeah. I'm just going to give you bullshit on a piece of paper and hope you, you believe it because it's yeah, hope, how much worse to know. Hope that you've swallowed my Excel spreadsheet that I've just extrapolated out for another two, three years. <laughs> really. yeah. I'd never do it because my concern would always be then one day, three years down the track, they'd be like, anyway, we're having a look at your five-year plan you gave us three years ago and you're like a 13% off it. And I'll be like, I can give it to you three years ago. That's pretty good. Like, I've had it's I'm always wary about what I give out. It's got to be something that I believe in that I think is achievable. Otherwise, you can come back and smack you in the face years later. Oh, and I think for, from a credibility point of view as well, because oh. I think a lot, of other, a lot of founders don't realize that you'll do this, right? I'm second time starting a, a business. I had my first business and sold it, but I took no investment in that business. Completely yeah. self-organic growth, right? Thought I lots and lots got into starting this and i was like gee whiz <laughs> that was only primary school i'm not entered secondary school <laughs> i need to keep going you and the other thing is, is you get an exit under your belt and even if you don't get an exit under your belt you've got this deep down inside you you'll always do it again right the most valuable thing that you have as a founder is pure credibility because if you burn your credibility with the people that you meet along your journey, whether they invest in you or not, or whether they come and work with you or not, then you don't have yeah. any, you, you have nothing. And there's a saying of, and excuse my language, you might have to edit this out of the podcast, but. We don't, we don't edit language, mate. 
Yeah, I'm Irish. I'm straight up, and so it's that kind of phrase of "don't piss in anybody in the way up the ladder." Just don't do it. There's no point. I suppose the other carbon don't burn bridges, but you get what I mean. Yeah, right. The, they didn't even use any bad language. I don't know. Expect also that you yeah, just yeah, get yeah. this. I forgot I'm talking to all of these and a New Zealanders. Yeah. It's, all, it's, all, it's all unfiltered, well, man. It's the, it's the name. <laughs> no, That's right. Right. There's a tip for me too. I never smoothed it out even when we were taking US funds for the entire time. But it's going to be too hard to remember to be smooth for the entire time you're going to work with these people. You might as well let them see who you are and then they decide to invest or not because we swear we drive businesses. We're working in trades for starters, right? It's just part of how the world works. It's true. And do you know what, Sean? That's a really good point. And that goes back to what you were asking, Ricky, about what do you think those investors want? And what also I've talked about what you should be wanting from them. I believe when you get with an investor, you need to look at it like it's a marriage. You're going to be with them for a five, 10 year period of time. And fundamentally, you have to like them. You really do. Yes. Your point of contact and that song might change over, but you might, you need to fundamentally like the culture, that song, what they stand for, what they want to do, because there's going to be really shit days and there's going to be really awesome days. And it's going to be that complete roller coaster. But the last thing you want to do is have a strained relationship with your main investors. It's just no good for you as a founder. It'll burn you out. It'll just kill you. So yeah, it goes back to being just you. And if they take you as you and they still invest, great. There's no, no hidden doors. There's no point pretending. If they like you and I like the vision that you're pitching and they believe that you can achieve it, they're a good part, right? And you have to then like them and the vision they're pitching you for where they think they can help you out. And that's, like you said, it's like a, a marriage and it's hard to get out of them once you do it. So it's going to cost you a lot if you want out. So, don't rush. Make sure that investor relations bit, I think, is super important. And I think getting some more tips from you, like how, how did you go about building when you when you're in this bit and you're you've got 30 companies trying to do a deal with you, how did you do your analysis there on which investor you actually can build a relationship with? Which one are you getting along with? What was your thought process in, in that? When you're taking the first round of an investment from a major fund. I ended up taking it from what's known as a single family office. So private family office. There was also early stage VCs that I could have taken the money from. And as you guys well know, the field service market has been hot for a number of years. So yep. op- options were there uh, for sure. And especially early stage entry as well into because you're disrupting what's there in a way and newer player. Plus, I think they all realize that there's an exit opportunity because there's so many roll-ups happening within it. Your options for investment in it is relatively good in comparison to some other kind of SaaS models. Plus, it's a traditional mission-critical type of software. It's not, oh my God, you're creating AI machine learning. Don't quite understand it. Although you could say AI at the moment and someone will write you a $100 million check for it. I was having that same feeling now that FinTech had and everyone else is having. Correct. But I picked that fund based on the criteria that I mentioned earlier, the majority of those points. But one of the strategic reasons why I took a family office fund money was I was very aware of 
my strategy within my business. And one of the key points was it was going to take time to build out the software. And simply because Fiend Service software is so extensive because it covers your scheduling, your operations, your finances, and everything else. And also, you can't just sell one part of it to a customer and say, hey, hang around for a year whilst we build out all the other. <laughs> so you can't get the early stage adopters. So I needed an investor that was prepared to come in that vision with me, prepared to say, look, we're going to invest in that and you're not going to be revenue generating for a period of time. And identifying those investors that were comfortable with that, going back to ones that were, where were they in their fund cycles, et cetera, et cetera. Most times, not all the times, but most times family offices are very patient capital. They're not under the same time lines of trying to get an exit, et cetera. But that's why I ended up there. And I also knew that they would do follow on capital as well for me. So that's how I analyzed them based on how they would complement my strategy for rolling out my company, really. That was my dilemma. Well, you had a very clear vision of what you want to achieve, where your company was going, and then you effectively, when you were prospecting, you discounted any that didn't fit what that vision was and moved them out. Yeah. So yeah. you narrowed your field down to, hey, these are the actual opportunities I have in my pipeline. You think about it like a sales journey, right? All these prospects, yeah. narrow it down. It's, it's right exactly there. what it is. Both, it on is. both sides. It is, 100%. This is why when I hear founders or CEOs of early stage companies go, oh, I can't sell. I'm sorry. You're going to have to learn how to sell right and quick because it's not just selling your product. It's selling your vision to the people that you're going to hire. It's selling your vision to the investors. It's selling. It is pure sales every day, every day. I'm just making it. Last week, absolutely pitching the life off to some guy in the beach <laughs> that I met. And my wife is standing going, oh no, he's at it. And I'm like, why stop? It's an opportunity. Because it's in your blood, mate. You can't stop. But look, you're just making Ricky happy. Like everything is sales. Ricky's like, yes. Everything, <laughs> everything is sales, right? 90% right. of our life is sales. Coming back to you, Draven, and clipboards, what are you most excited about? What's up and coming for you and clipboard? As I mentioned, we're in another investment round. Good thing is this is for pure growth, which is great. It's not capital because, oh my God, I need to turn my company around and get it off the juice of spending too much. We never went for that model of super, super high growth at all costs and just spending down investment money really quickly. We had to mix between that and somewhat organic growth. That hindered in a way because some venture capitalists just don't like that and they wanted to see you spending harder and getting faster growth. However, as we've seen, the tables have now turned and I'm now sexy. I'm now attractive to invest and, and, and acquirers because I have a business that is not hemorrhaging cash and it's got strong retention. This capital is coming in to grow. Uh, most people would be thinking, is the market growing at the moment? Hell yeah, it is. Is it got any field service? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's still a lot of the market left. Huge yeah. amount of market mm. left. And there's players in the market. It's competitive, as we all know. But for me, the next focus over those next 12 to 18 months is to hit our next milestone. And we'll go from there in the sense of what the next chapter of our journey may be. I don't know. I get my door wrapped from time to time, but 
I don't think my time's ready. I am excited for the next stage. And also, I think there's some technological things. Food service is slow to adopt. The rest of the technology market moves faster. People will adopt new things and whatnot. I think food service is still only getting its head around IoT, which was the thing seven years ago. Seven years ago. So I'm not going to come off with the, the, the bullshit term of AI today and say, hi, we're going to integrate AI into field service and some machine learning and predictive analysis. I don't think my market's ready for that, who we serve. And that's another case in point to young founders, early mm-hmm. stage founders. Don't go building product features that your customers just don't bloody want. Build what they want and sell to your market. Know your customer. Know your market. And don't be a jack of all trades. Focus on that. I think that's key for sure for us over the next one. Yeah. Really good tips there, right? Because it's so easy to just go after the next shiny object when it comes to product roadmap. But just be really crystal clear and listen to your customers. Features don't sell. You don't have to tell I, me I, twice. I, yeah. And I'll go, even, I'll go even further than that. The product doesn't sell. People buy from people, right? You're making this down. <laughs> We're going to have to do a follow-up podcast just on that. <laughs> people buy from people, but the yeah. product. Yeah. People just buy from people. Look, let's be real. We all know shit software products, and you sit back and go, how in the hell have they ever got the time of day? Why are people yeah. using that? Oh, yeah. It's because they've had the right sales engine. They've had the right culture, right? had the people behind it believing. And when you get on to sell that product and use that passion and energy, you'll carry forward the other people with you and they'll buy that. It's not down to, oh, do you have this feature? <laughs> it's not that. And most times customers will negate those things and find workarounds if they believe that mm-hmm. you're right and look after them. That's all mm-hmm. they care about. Hey. Isn't money, money safe with you? That's all they want to know. Yeah. As long as the product actually works for what you're trying to get it done and if it's the ICP, it was always fun when we'd get the, I oh, know we lost that deal because it doesn't do this. So we're like, really? It does it. 99% of everything they wanted, and they found this one little tiny thing that it doesn't do and that's why they're not going to do the deal. And then you find out who the deal would deal with and you're like, but they don't do that either. They're like, oh, but I, I don't, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go- people buy from people. Mate, you're going to trigger me to that whole <laughs> other podcast. That's, uh, that's what I mean. Isn't it's that the favorite part of being a CEO when you get to have those discussions and you're like, oh, really? That's, that's good, Jen. Love it. I know. You know what's even more fun is sometimes, yeah. I obviously sometimes the sales calls still because I like to know what's going on front line. I like to hear from the front line and get in there. Like, I still know my first customers and they're still our first customers because I spoke to them. But I don't get disconnected from that because being here from the front line will help me determine what happens in the product roadmap and everything else and where the business is actually going. But most times when I go on those calls, they have the clarity that I'm the CEO or the founder or anything like that. I just talk to them like I'm another normal employee in there. And then when they find out, there's nearly a level of shock from them as well. You didn't say it. I'm like, ain't I? Why should I say and they just shows the rest of your team that it's not down to job titles or who's senior or who's not. It's engaging with people, understanding them, understanding their needs, and just selling. It's fun. I love selling. Well, Ricky, you love selling. <laughs> I know too well, mate. We've had too many beers. Uh, I am very mindful that it's late for you, Draven, and you've dropped in a whole heap of gold nuggets. So thank you for that. would love to take you through the quick fire round questions. 
We Go ask all it. the guests to pop on the podcast. All the same ones. Part, you, part of that group is five years beer. Oh, you already answered that, mate, with your charismatic looks. and Yeah, yeah. one of going to be, how come you don't have any gray hairs in there yet? Let's go. Why is it all one color? Well, how did you manage to do that? Because I'm only turning a fresh 40 years of age in October, Sean. So, you know, still young at heart. Still young. Still young at heart. That's a, not, it's not helping me at all. Favorite, favorite music. music? Favorite music? Oh, no one's ever going to believe this, but I love techno music. And I'm happy to oh, yeah. invent that. Love it. Grew up in a high era. Love that music. Ran nightclubs. Sorry. Can't get it out of my blood. If I had the stamina and the ability to stay up to 3 a.m. in the morning in a nightclub, it'd still find me, but I don't have that anymore. <laughs> yeah. We're still, we're 40. We still think about going to a nightclub. We just oh, don't go anymore. Think. Yeah. We yeah. think. I think mean, it's a fabulous yeah. idea. Yeah. And then yeah. if you want to come <laughs> to crunch to say, yeah. we're going, I'd be like, oh, not sure. Oh, yeah. So much to do tomorrow morning. Yeah. I'm always like, oh, I think one of the kids are like, oh, I'm actually going to go. I'm really sorry. To go. They're like, but your kids aren't even here. I'm like, I can hear it. It's up dancing. You yeah. can hear it from distance. Mate, favorite movie of all time? Favorite movie of all time? Oh, that's a super hard one. I'm going to give you two. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. both of them have got Tom Cruise in them. And I don't know why I'm saying both these. I know, look at the eyebrows. No judgments. Yeah. No judgments. <laughs> but it's just because of pure nostalgia. I love Top Gun. Don't know why. Just, mm. it's just pure, I don't know, 80s pure cheese. But I also love the Rain Man. And I think how it does acted in Rain Man was absolutely incredible. And yeah, I just like that. Two very different movies. But yeah. Oh, nice one. Best off. Hey, I think I can guess this one, but let's confirm it. Favorite activity? I think you both know I'm a motorcycle rider. Goes with the territory. I absolutely love riding motorcycles. I've ridden them since I was a kid. Road motocross, quad racing. Now I go touring on motorcycle on my motorbike. I'm just back from Italy, Switzerland, and France. Yeah, love it. Love it. My nice. wife even comes and joins me. I've even roped her into it now. Oh, nice. Is oh, it freedom? Good one. It's the sense of freedom. And do you know what? Mm. Guys have been in really high positions of stress, right? Yeah. And your mind never switches off, ever. You're constantly thinking, analyzing, moving, tweaking, whatever else. It's the only place in the world that I switch off, and I tried meditation and I am useless out. But I tried. My meditative state is on the motorcycle because yeah. I have to focus simply because mm. if I don't, I'll die. In a weird way, it de-stresses me and brings me down. And yeah. I think that's really important for any founder is to find that. Agreed. Yeah. Burnout is always about that close. Mm. Always. Mm. Because we think inside our heads, we are mentally capable of absolutely everything and we'll keep going. Mm. And then it's only when you get slapped in your face, you go, maybe I'm not. Part of our job is we sit on the edge of burnout all day. The closer the edge you get, the, the more high-performing you're doing. And so you need an activity, you need something of which is your ability to turn off. And everyone needs one, something. Yeah. Everyone what I needs... took from there was pick an activity that's always going to kill you. So yeah, I'm just saying that. Skiing. <laughs> I go skiing. That's exactly the same. You're like, oh, you're going to break your bone. You're going to get off the cliff or something. But I think we always do what we do because we like an app, we have an appetite for risk. Sure. I like feeling not on edge, but feeling alive, challenged and pushed. That's me. My, I operate best 
I'm actually nearly under pressure the vast majority of the time. But some people don't like that. You got to know what you like and what you don't like. Great point. Mate, you just mentioned you've been to Italy, Switzerland, and France. Any favorite place to visit that you've been to or you haven't been to? I meant to go to Japan. And so that's See, on another my... one for Japan. Man, yeah. Japan's so like... That's on my list. Japan's Japan. Yeah, everyone's loving a bit of Japan. If yeah. anyone's listening to Japan, can you sponsor the podcast? I just, I'm just back from Jordan. I oh, you went to Jordan? Jordan. I traveled from the very top of Jordan right down to the bottom of Jordan, covered the whole country. It's a small country. Um, went and seen Petra, which was absolutely incredible. I got up at sunrise, 5 a.m., made my way into Petra. There was no crowds of tourists. Mm. And I ended up, as usual, I'll talk to anyone. I befriended a Bedouin tribe member who then took me way up a mountain and made me tea in his camp. And we sat and talked for two hours about life. And that man knew so much about the world. It just blew my mind. And he had lived in Petra for 23 years. It was a really cool experience for sure. And I love everywhere in Southeast Asia. I've been around Bali, Malaysia. You guys, I'm sure. Bali's going to Spain for you guys. Never been. No. I've never what? been. All the Aussies, mate. Yeah. No, I've never been. I'm a, yeah. I'm a Fiji man, so I spend my time there. Yeah, so I love there. I love the South East India. Don't get me wrong, I've been to America and everything else, but sadly, the West is homogenized for me now. London, New York, it's a lot of it's similar apart from the architecture. So I love going into countries and environments that are challenging and different and put me in a completely different culture. Love mm. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Talking about challenging, this is the main one, mate. This, this is what the whole make, podcast is all around. Make or break, mate. Make or break. Yeah. Be scared. Peter, oh, me but, too. Peter, but how do you like yours? Crunchy or smooth? Crunchy or smooth? Ah, no. Crunchy. <laughs> oh, Save one now. Well done. Yeah. Good call. Good call. There's been some disappointment on this podcast a few times, so it's good we've had a couple of crunchies in a row. So it's good. Oh. People yeah. who don't actually want to eat any peanuts, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway. This has been a blast. Thank you That's for it. sharing all your insights and good to know that you're on the crunchy side. Yeah, look, man, I'm pleasure to be invited on doing this. I have a huge respect for both you guys and it's been a real super pleasure to get to know you over the last couple of years. So to be asked to come on this evening, I was well down for it. 